This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hi, I'm Yusuf Dahl, and when I was 18, I was convicted of selling drugs. For the past three years, I've had difficulty finding housing because it is legal in the United States to discriminate against individuals that have a past drug distribution conviction on their record for life. It doesn't matter if it was a hard drug like heroin or a drug that's now legal or partially legal in many states across the country like marijuana. The Thurman Amendment was introduced to the Fair Housing Act in 1988 by segregationist Strom Thurman, and it's since been used to deny housing to all people. But because people of color are disproportionately jailed for drug charges, we are affected more. My goal is to overturn this amendment to start an end to housing discrimination that unfairly targets people of color. If you would like to join this movement, please visit ThurmanAmendment.org to learn more. A message from the Fable and Folly Network. Hi, I'm Tanya Ransom, creator and executive producer of Nightlight, a horror podcast featuring creepy tales written and performed by Black creatives from all over the world. This week we have two stories for you. First up, a story originally published in After the Fall about what happens when the apocalypse comes to the hood. Then a tale of a siren song that affects the most unlikely of victims. But before we get to a couple of brothers fighting off the dead, just a reminder that all episodes are brought to you by the Nightlight Legion. Thanks to our newest members Anne, Joe, Emily, Shrub, Connor, Brian, and Elizabeth. Thanks also to Audra and Merritt for increasing their pledges, and thanks to Jennifer for donating via PayPal. You all have my eternal gratitude. We're working toward our goal of bringing you new episodes every week, but we need your help. Just go to patreon.com nightlightpod to join the Nightlight Legion and get a shout out on the podcast. Now sit back, turn out the lights, and enjoy. You call this an apocalypse? By Eric Nunnally. Narrated by Devonte Johnson. Quan swung his fire axe into the zombie's head, cutting messily through its skull and splattering its brains right at Trayvon's feet. The boy just about fainted, knowing where the gelatinous mass had been. The dead body, in mid-step, crumpled like the marionette it was. Quan whooped with joy and Trayvon's heart sunk further, if that were at all possible. Trayvon had a lifelong history with Joe Quan. They'd grown up in the same neighborhood, taught by the same teachers, and played at the same parks. At one time, they'd even lived together in a foster home. Not exactly friends, they'd known each other their entire lives, separated by a personal interest, inextricably joined by culture and geography. They were both 17, but Trayvon was a nerd. He hated the portmanteau blurred almost as much as he hated the ridiculous convention that white comic creators tended to use when naming black characters. 
Black Lightning, Black Racer, Black Spider, Black Eagle, Black Panther. Well, the Panther was pretty cool, and his name made sense. Since he was the leader of the Black Panther cult and king of the fictional African country of Tron! Wake the fuck up! We're about to get some serious shit right here. Why are you holding the shovel like that? Quit crating the damn thing like it's a baby. Get ready to swing that bitch. Trayvon secretly loved that Quan called him Tron. Most people shorten his name to Trey, but Quan always looked for the most creative angle to truncate someone's name. Thanks to his friend's wit, Trayvon was closer than ever to imagining himself on par with Tron, the savior of the Incom mainframe. He looked down at the entrenching tool they'd found alongside the axe at the firehouse and shifted his grip so that he was holding it more like the baseball players he'd seen on television. They continued to move through the building. Quan was 180 degrees from being a nerd like Trayvon and at least 50,000 kelecams in the opposite direction, diving into the hot sun at the center of the solar system of coolness. Kelecams, by the way, are a Klingon unit of measure, similar to a kilometer, but about twice as Tron! Tron! Damn, son! Daydream when we the fuck somewhere safe! You in shock or some shit? The duel headed for the back of Engine 52 station. The house seemed to be empty. All the firefighters out dealing with one emergency after another. There were no police stations nearby to even consider raiding, so they sought solace here. Though there were more axes available, they were too heavy for Trayvon to handle accurately, so Quan had shoved the lightweight military shovel into his hands. The Zed Quan had just dropped must have been part of the skeleton crew left behind to monitor the radio, and... The radio! Hey, hey, Quan, if we can find the radio here, we might be able to... Watch your back, son! Trayvon whirled. Wherever there was a freshly dead walker, there seemed to be another less fresh. How else would the firemen have been infected inside the firehouse? Emergency rescue personnel were ironically the most vulnerable. Their instincts were to help, not split a skull open to run towards trouble and damn self-preservation all but guaranteed an agonizing demise. The former human being Quan had put down probably died trying to help this thing, not believing the dead walked. The horror facing him must have been the victim of a murderous impact and freshly buried. The female corpse wore what was once a clean and professional skirt suit, the better to be presentable when being interred, a tradition that baffled Trayvon. The thing was now covered in grime and blood. She was dragging one leg at an inhuman angle, and her arm on the same side dangled boneless, like a numb tentacle, her entire person a vile reminder that the dead walked. Trayvon raised his tool. The horror creeping slowly towards him echoed the trembles rising from his stomach. He brought the edge of the spade down square on her head, or so he intended. The sharp edge cut across her skull at an angle, shearing off a portion of her scalp and skull. With an ear dangling, she stumbled forward as Trayvon lost his balance yelping uncontrollably and tumbling, his legs tangling with hers. Shokwan! Oh, for real? Finish this half-crippled bitch, Tron, and let's go. Trayvon could hear the exasperation in Quan's voice, impatient at having to pull his companion out of fire after fire. If this were going to work, Trayvon knew he needed to get his game together, and soon. The dead woman squirmed, using her one good hand to grab a fistful of Trayvon's pants, trying to pull herself into a position to bite. He panicked, freed one leg, and kicked her off. Then with a speed and accuracy he'd never known, Trayvon swung the tool in an arc, cutting through the dead woman's neck, striking sparks from the concrete floor. The body went still, and the boy was barely aware of what had happened. He blashed out and got unlucky. Ooh, shit! That's what I'm talking about! Knew you had it in you, nigga! Quan laughed and kicked the head across the floor. Trayvon shuffled to his feet, and shoved his glasses back up on his nose so he could see Quan clearly when he looked into his eyes, relieved to focus on something 
other than shambling dead people, he spoke with confidence. Don't call me nigger. That's self-hating. Quan screwed his face up. The fuck? You think I hate myself? Never ignorant getting goals accomplished, boy. N-I-G-G-A. He thumped his chest with each letter, then poked Trayvon, forcing the less imposing boy to take a step back. Yo ass still alive because of me. You keep zoning out, and I ain't going to be able to keep you alive much longer. Being shuffled from home to home as they got older had opposing effects on the two boys. Over the years, Trayvon sank further and further into books of all kinds, especially comics and science fiction. But he never developed the kind of brazen confidence that Quan seemed to generate tirelessly like the fission of heavy isotopes. The more Trayvon learned, the more conflict-averse he became. As if a thick blanket of knowledge smothered any aggression he may have developed over time, he remembered reading somewhere that boys like him were time bombs waiting to explode one day. Yet, every humiliating episode he could think of leading up to this moment merely left him feeling more confused than angry, the edge of any fury dulled forever by a relentless academic logic. He recalled one such incident, in eighth grade, at the all-white suburban school to which he was being bused at the time, an urban program to give inner-city kids access to suburban schools' larger school budgets. An essay he'd written was chosen to be read at a school event. The teacher had asked him if he had a tie, slacks, and shoes for the event. Would he be able to participate? He owned no such clothing and shook his head. Even though his essay had been chosen along with four others, his appearance would be the price of entry. Despondent, he'd gone home, told his current foster mother, and she managed to dig up a pair of shoes, slacks, and a tie for him. The tie was a hideous, multicolored affair. The slacks bell-bottomed in lime green, and the shoes were at least one size too small. Still, he had achieved both the academic costs and the minimum of proprietary fashion. During the car ride to the event, Trayvon held a casserole in his lap. When they arrived, he discovered that liquid had leaked past the battered, foil-covered container and left a brown stain down one side of his calf where it finally pulled in one of his tight shoes. On stage, his leg cold, wet, and stained with gravy. Trayvon sat with four other boys before he discovered that his essay had not been given to the presenter. They'd assumed he would not be participating, so the handwritten essay had been left behind. Somewhere. Why couldn't this have been rectified on the spot? Surely the essay could be retrieved. More questions followed, tumbling one after the other. Because he'd not been assertive enough? Because there was no time? Because he didn't have real parents? Because he was the only black boy on stage with four other white boys? They were the kinds of questions that kept him up at night, his mind eventually wandering into a fantasy realm to evade the stress. His sense of logic could only determine that these questions would never be answered satisfactorily, like trying to figure out why the dead walked. Trayvon muttered the only thing that seemed worthy of noting at the time. It's the apocalypse! I... Quan spread his arms. You call this an apocalypse? Please. This is a Tuesday night in the hood, son. This ain't shit. Bravado, braggadocio, boldness, braggart, bombast, and other alliterative nouns that Quan likely didn't know bounced around Trayvon's mind. Tuesday. Then the boy smiled and started to giggle. It wasn't long before Quan grinned and chuckled, lowering his arms, then raising them again with a ridiculous smirk on his face. They guffawed uncontrollably until Trayvon, gasping for air, broke in. A Tuesday, huh? Tuesday. Okay. Okay. Well, I don't want to see the weekend, okay? We really want to get out of here alive, right? Damn right. That's what we come here, man. All them fire folks out trying to save a neighborhood that stopped caring about itself before we was born. 
we gotta gear up and get out. Boston's inner city proved a unique challenge for those who wanted to survive the zombie apocalypse. Fire and police stations were few, no gun shops to loot, precious few hardware or grocery stores, and no easy way to organize people. The area was constantly on the edge of teetering over into a depressing mess without flesh-eating corpses wandering around. As far back as Trayvon could remember, nothing ever changed. He and Quan continually swapped homes as one foster parent's tour of duty ended and another's began. But the neighborhood remained a constant, regardless of what the rest of the world was doing. We need to use a radio to call for help. Help? Damn, John, you killing me. Ain't no help here. Never have been. What? You expect the National Guard to come running because two niggas call from the hood? Trayvon ground his teeth, ignoring the word he considered an epithet no matter how Quan pronounced or spelled it. Then where are we going? Like I said, we gear up and get on to the cemetery down by Forest Hills. The cemetery? Where all the dead people are? Damn, Tron, think about it. You smarter than that, he thought. Most of the corpses would be deeply interred or too far rotted to be a problem. Plenty of open ground. There was a house on the grounds and the whole thing was surrounded by a high wrought iron fence. This fire station had food, emergency supplies, and more. All the firefighters and cops usually drove SUVs. There were probably a few in the back. Well, damn. Quan was right. Yeah, you get it now. The more aggressive and tactically oriented boy wore a wide grin on his face. We can even take some radios for when shit cools down. Trayvon began to understand where he was going to fit in the apocalypse. As Quan searched the premises for keys to personal vehicles, Trayvon sat down at a computer to learn all he could about BFD communications and equipment taking advantage of the internet while it still functioned. Keys in hand, the boys began loading a black SUV in the back lot of the station. They emptied the kitchen of whatever food they believed would travel well and filled the back with two more uncovered axes, a few pikes, radios, chargers, a ladder, and some power tools. They could see smoke in the air, drifting like octopus ink underwater. The occasional screams of people and the muted pops of handguns came to their ears. It was Trayvon's idea to top off the gas tank and add two additional canisters of fuel. Trayvon looked for somewhere outside the vehicle to hook the jerry cans, but had to load them in the back. Keep the back windows rolled down. We don't want to suffocate on gas fumes or, well, explode over a spark or something. Quan grinned and did what Trayvon asked as the boys clambered into the front seats. The engine turned over easily. Quan backed the truck out of its spot and wheeled around the side of the building. On the opposite corner, they saw an older man wearing an apron and using a push broom to hold one of the walking dead back. He was yelling profanities in a thick Caribbean accent, keeping the Zed from entering his store. Quan slammed the truck into park and said, I want some snack cakes. Are you serious? Now! Quan looked at the acquaintance he'd known his entire life. Despite their social distance, Trayvon was the closest thing he had to a brother. The young man was the only constant in his life, the only person whose values he respected and could depend on. Maybe you should pick him up. Get something you like, too, because I don't think we're going to be able to hit the corner store later. Trayvon looked out the window at the old man struggling to keep the zombie at bay. Go on, man. I'm going to wait for you right here. Get some menthols, too. Their eyes locked for a moment. Then Trayvon hopped out of the vehicle and trotted around to the back, sliding a pike out of the hatch. Quan stepped out of the cab, lit a cigarette, and watched as Trayvon scooted around the old man struggling with the zombie and dipped into the store. Moments later, he emerged with a plastic sack, heavy with treats. The old man glanced at the young intruder with a worried and disgusted look on his face. 
Trayvon stopped, took aim, and speared the dead monster through its head, pushing it to the ground with the pike. Then he handed the steel tool to the old man and tried it back to the truck. I like the pike. Thought you might. Dude, I think everyone in that old man's family was inside that place. They just stared at me the whole time in there. Stuff in the corner. Dots of perspiration speckled Trayvon's hairline and dark patches had formed under his shirt's arms. Quan smirked and hopped back into the driver's seat, slammed the door and pulled the SUV onto Donald Street, cutting through the Harvard and making a straight run for the cemetery. Niggas gotta learn to take care of their damn selves. And now, keep the lights off for our second story, Siren Song by Nicole Givens-Kurtz, narrated by Kalila Roney. You ever want to just walk into traffic? Katrina cut her eyes over to me. Beneath the fall of her curly bangs, she sucked her teeth. No. You seriously don't hear their song as they go rushing by? It was definitely a song, not the harsh blaring of horns and rude honks. No, it was lyrical and enchanting. Katrina adjusted her collar against the cold winter wind. Nuh-uh. What does it sound like? We started walking down the sidewalk along 12th Avenue. I shuffle closer to her and recite the lines as fast as I can. It's cold, and I don't want the next group of pedestrians to interrupt me. It goes like this. Come play with us, it'll be fun. Come play with us, you'll be done. Come play with us, it'll be fine. Come play with us, then you'll die. Katrina shoved her gloved hands into her coat pockets and glared at me, mouth agape. You're not right up there, Mimi. She tapped her temple. I gave a half-hearted smile, taking it as a joke, because I hope she meant it as a joke. Yeah, I know. The flat tone alarmed Katrina, despite my efforts to give positive verbal cues. She grabbed my arm, spun me around, and with the distance between her artful eyebrows wrinkling, said, You're serious. You really hear that? The false smile pulled tight on my lips. No, girl, of course not. That's crazy. She searched my face, her gaze roaming all over me like a thousand ants. I kept the smile in place until she relaxed. The bunched-up skin on her forehead smoothed. Okay, let's go get some food. A good bowl of pho will chase off the chills, Katrina said, pulling my arm as she marched ahead. I didn't want to get anything into me, but I allowed myself to be towed to the Vietnamese bistro on the corner. The cold helped me keep my face blank, even though the aroma of rich beef broth was delicious. How could I explain that what I wanted was to get something out? We came to the intersection of 12th Avenue and Vine Drive. Fung Gong sat glowing with illuminated lights and a heated dining area, beckoning for us to enter. I turned to follow Katrina into the open door when I stopped. I looked back to the street, and the whispering that brushed my ears grew louder. Come play with us. It'll be fun. Come play with us. You'll be done. Come play with us. It'll be fine. Come play with us. Then you'll die. 
My heart raced and my feet refused to move forward into the restaurant. A prick of cold, more frigid than the winter temperature, rippled from my head to my booted feet, making me shiver. I let the door go, and it faintly clicked shut. Ahead, the traffic light changed, and this stream of cars bolted through the intersection, singing their song loudly and extending their smear of colors and solace out toward me. Come play with us, it'll be fun. Come play with us, you'll be done. Come play with us, it'll be fine. Come play with us, then you'll die. Thanks again to our patrons for supporting this podcast. Because of your support, listeners around the world get creepy tales in their ears every other week. If you want new stories every week, the only way for that to happen is to join the Nightlight Legion by going to patreon.com slash nightlightpod and supporting this podcast. You can also make a one-time donation via PayPal at paypal.me slash nightlightpodcast. If you're unable to support us financially, word of mouth is the next best way to help. Give us a shout-out online on Twitter or Instagram at NightlightPod, or like us on Facebook at NightlightPod. Reviews are also a huge help, so be sure to leave a few kind words on your podcast platform of choice. Audio production for this week's episode by Davis Walden of the Viridian Wild Podcast. And to thank you for listening until the very end, we have a creepy fact for you. You've probably heard of zombie ants infected by Ophiocordyceps, But have you heard of zombie spiders? A species of wasp larva in the Ecuadorian Amazon infects a particular species of highly social spiders and forces the spiders to leave the safety of their colony to spin cocoon-like webs in far-off locations. The wasp first lays its eggs on the spiders, and as the larvae hatch, they begin to take control of the spider. Eventually, the spider is food for the new larva, safe and sound in the cocoon the zombified spider built. We'll be back next week to bring you interviews with Eric and Nicole. Then we'll have a new story for you the following week. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish.